Welcome to the Final Girls Podcast. I'm Anna Bogutska, and as ever, I'm your podcast host. In this mini-series, we're exploring and celebrating The House of Psychotic Women, the seminal book by Kayla Janice. What do you think? Go ahead, be honest, just tell me. You think I'm insane? Do you know these women wrestling in the green out blood? No! I disgust you! I'm sick on you! You hate me! But it's difficult, don't you understand? It is difficult! I didn't want it to happen, but it happened, and now! Spooky season might be over, but we're not quite done yet. Published over a decade ago now, the House of Psychotic Women's ripple effects can be felt on a whole generation of horror fans, filmmakers, critics, and programmers, myself very much included. Kayla Janice's House of Psychotic Women is many things, as is its author. If you haven't read the book yet, I can't recommend it enough. It's a tome of film history, criticism, a study of female neurosis, and a memoir. And in this mini-series of the podcast, I'm talking to special guests, all filmmakers whose films have a psychotic woman at the heart of them, about a film featured in the book that inspired or influenced their work in some way. In the first episode, we dove deep into the themes and the writing of the book itself, and since then, I've been joined by Prana Bailey Bond, director of Censor, Deborah Haywood, director of Pincushion, and today... I'm joined by Kane Senes and Hannah Barlow, co-directors of the Glitter Gore Gem Sissy, to talk about how the book and Carrie inspired their work. Kane and Hannah instantly chose Carrie, Brian De Palma's adaptation of Stephen King's first novel about a bullied teen with telekinetic powers who just snaps. We talk at length about their love for the film and the many ways it influenced their film, as well as their incredibly joyous relationship to Kayla's book. If you enjoyed this episode, do let me know. You can find me for now, Screaming Into the Void on Twitter at AnnaBeDemented, and you can support the podcast over on Patreon or by leaving us a review on Apple or Spotify Podcasts. And with all of that said, please join me in the house of psychotic women. which we did it's fine <laughs> we got there this is always the most awkward part nobody can ever cl- nobody can ever clap it's like if i ask someone to like count to okay. count to five and there's like oh seven we, i don't know again? are we good <laughs> let's do it three two one <laughs> you better include this in the recording <laughs> oh it's going in it's going in we're struggling <laughs> It's a great Do it start. Again? Do it again? <laughs> no. I'm on to my, my second whiskey here. So. Okay. Okay. <laughs>
<laughs> I really appreciate you guys making the time, especially considering the absolutely wild time difference that we have. You're on your whiskey. I'm on my tea. <laughs> it's going to be a great conversation. Yeah, it's, a good one. it's weird because it's like 11 hours. So it's almost the complete opposite. Mm. You know, it's almost 12 hours. Yeah, we're on the opposite ends of the witching hour. I love it's it. It's all good. <laughs> so I want to start with the with you guys with the same question I've been asking to all my guests for this mini series with a little bit of personal history. Um, what is your relationship with House of Psychotic Women? When did you first encounter the book? Well, you bought it for us. Yeah, I was just um, I'm a big researcher, and I just remember when we were writing Sissy, and um, I was just researching, you know, what are the best books about slasher films, or or just kind of like feminist horror, all all kinds of different buzzwords that I was throwing into the internet, and and um, this book just kind of came up a lot, and so I. I, it, it wasn't a very, I feel like we don't have like a very organic kind of story, but I guess it's our own story. Like it wasn't like someone recommended it from a friend or we found, or we came upon it in hard times and it saved us. It was just research and it came up and we, um, we ordered a copy and we basically started reading it through, uh, uh, through the script writing process and mostly through pre-production um yeah I and I guess I guess uh for me because Kane's been like a horror hound a fan of horror for so many years and I was too but I hadn't really acknowledged it until this book came along because this book gave me permission to to really see horror as a truly feminist space um and I feel like women have been kept at an arm's length from horror for so long and Kayla has pr- provided a Bible and a film school and a portal for us to connect t- to the space because really the point that she continues to make is that horror puts a spotlight on the female psychosis in a way that no other genre realistically does. Um, and so, you know, reading this book and reading her sort of confessional diary um, entry into this genre gave me permission to also like put my ghouls on screen. And now I'm like, we're returning to it again in our next process um, after having made Sissy. So it's just really exciting to learn from her continuously. Yeah. And there's like a, like a lot of films in here. So I think, you know, I think by the time we've made like, like 10 movies, we'll probably have, seen, have finished it. <laughs> we, we'll have seen everything. <laughs> I love the way that you framed that, Hannah, the fact that the book gave you permission, which I think is such an apt word for, I think, a lot of people who find their way into the genre and, you know, kind of almost start identifying themselves as horror fans. Everyone has this process, like either it's through a movie or someone giving them that kind of permission to be like, no, actually, this is good and I enjoy it and I'm here for this and it does all these different things for me and I wanted to think you know what do you guys what did you guys make of the actual book itself because it's so many things at once it's a memoir it's a film history tome it's a bible and a guide for horror movies like what do you make of the writing and the the hybrid nature of it can I throw in another word yeah it's a time capsule (laughs) so on brand yeah (laughs) (laughs) I realized that today when we were like looking at it again, 
it, it really is a time capsule. Um, it's not into so many eras of this brilliant mm. genre. And uh, I, I find it hard to wrap my head around what it is still. Um, but I'm just grateful that it exists because, you know, it, it is confessional. It's so, the way she opens up her soul to the reader mm. is so, like, I don't want to say brave, but because it's almost reductive, but it's just, um, it's, it's, it's a unifier, this book. And yeah. What, what are your thoughts on it? Um, well, I, I, I mean, it's probably the, it, I mean, it's gotta be the most confessional form of like film c- criticism that, that I've ever seen. Um, you know, like I, we think we're pretty kind of, um, open people with our feelings and things, but some of the stuff that she puts in this book, it's like, wow, I don't, I don't know if I would <laughs> like, if I would put that out mm-hmm. to the world, but I, I love that she does. And it reminds us like how, well, I, I know you don't want to say brave, but it's, it's hard to find another word, but like how, um, how empowering that is, you know, how powerful that is and that she owns all those things and that they make up her story and that in a way she finds, and I think this is what maybe we all see in horror and just in movies in general, like she finds so much commonality with so many of these characters and themes that it helped her through some of her darkest times. Like when you don't feel alone, that's when you can truly kind of get back on your feet and, um, you know, face fear with a uh, a sense of power, you know, and I think... Yeah, reclaiming. Reclaim the fear, you know, like so many of these these characters do in these movies, um, or at least the ones that that, that um, I've seen. But, but you know, like, yeah, it, it, it's just the, con- the confession, the confessional nature of it is really striking. Um, and it's also just like, it's a, it's a wonderful roadmap and a mirror about like female emancipation. You know, mm. it, that that's what struck me the most. Like we, it, it's actually, it's very, very brave to it be expressing rage because it's so, it's still not okay. It's still taboo for us to mm-hmm. really share the, the, the taboo chambers of our hearts and minds because women aren't perfect. We are not nurturers always. We are not loving and kind we are all things that men are too we we have really dark recesses in ourselves and uh i think that she is doing something that a lot of academics aren't doing that also a lot of creatives aren't doing which is kind of like paving a way towards emancipation like let's not forget the history that has held us back let's explore it and that's the road towards like freedom Mm. and expression and Mm. Um, actually reclaiming our birthright as women, which is our narrative, you know. Mm. So by by putting hers on the page in connection to other um, artistic, you know, expressions of, uh, of um, I don't know, yeah, horror, I guess, mm. uh, the things that scare us, we're able to do the same. Um, yeah. And she's the first person to do it, I think. Mm. Like the first woman. Yeah, the thing the thing that I remember always striking the thing I remember always being so striking about the book, even as I've read it, and you know, I was thinking this on stage interviewing Kayla just this past weekend, at Weird Weekend, was that it is so openly subjective. Mm-hmm. And I think that for journalists, for film critics, for anyone kind of writing about 
art in any kind, that's a dirty word. Mm. And one that you're even taught, I remember in university being literally told the whole point is about being objective, strip yourself away completely. But then that's so uninteresting for, you know, for me as a viewer, almost like what I know, I want to know why this person decides that this is good or bad, because I wanted to be that person. But then I realized like, no, the whole point is like, what is everything that you are and who you are defines how you approach these things. Mm -hmm. So if you're trying to eradicate them, you're essentially trying to create this canon of, no, this is good or bad and nothing else matters. No other opinion matters. There was no other entry point into this. And Kayla's book, you know, 10 years on, reading it 10 years on after kind of became a professional critic and been working in the, in the space for a while, it's so incredibly bold to, and so it came so early on that I don't think we fully got the the power of this subjectivity, this open subjectivity on the page when it was first released. And it's it's been incredible to kind of rethink, think about it again after 10 years, seeing the impact that it's had on people. Well, she was ahead of the game, right? Like, mm. Yeah, she is an influencer. <laughs> that is a dirty word. <laughs> she is. is. Is this a segue I'm smelling? She's influenced me. <laughs> she, 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 she is an influencer, though. Like, I mean, not, not the way that we think. Not, not in a digital sense, but just in terms of like leading by example, right? It's kind of like how can you tell people to be bold and open about. Mm their past and their trauma so that you can heal from it so that you can, you know, throw the curtains open on those darkest things. Like if you don't do it yourself and she's on it, she's just gone out there in public and done it. And yes, I I don't know what the audience was originally, um, whether it was a niche thing or not, but like it's surely grown in time. And it, it was just so cool. Like we, we um we ran into her at the Fantasia. Well, we met her for the first time at the Fantasia Film Festival because she's been like we've just been on the festival circuit with our movie, and mm-hmm. she's been doing a lot of the the same thing. Just because kind of, she's on her book tour. Well, she she's on her book tour, and yeah. it, it was really cool that the two coincided at Fantasia in Montreal because you know like we 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 were able to go to this talk that she gave, and it was like in a little kind of um almost like a university lecture hall. Uh, where we were sitting mm. with the desk with the with the the chairs with the fold up desks and and we were just <laughs> listening to her whole life story and cinema muerte and all that early stuff that she went through and it was just it <laughs> it was right around the time that like our local video store in Sydney Australia it was the last one left was closing and I was like really cut up about it and just listening to her talk about you know her experiences running kind of these little local indie theaters curating. And- curate and she'd throw these nights on um and do these you know these um double bills or marathons for no money and and just kind of being able to you know um i think be on the festival circuit after covid and see what these midnight marathons were like at these horror festivals after hearing her talk about it back what I don't know when she was doing that in the seventies or something or no the eighties nineties eighties nineties I'm sorry Kayla you're not that old <laughs> um, you know, if if it, it was really um it it was moving, like it's it's the first genre film we've made, but to be out in the genre circuit and to meet all the people that this is like their their bread and butter, it's their life, it's 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 unlike any other genre. Like when you're in a horror community or just a genre community in general, I like the stuff we've made in the past, it probably doesn't play to that. It's more kind of general, you know, it's more something that you might see at, at like a broader festival, but 
being in the horror community was really cool. And just being able to meet her and hear her talk about all that and then get the 10th anniversary book and just kind of, um, even though we really, it was only a few years back that we picked up um, our first copy of it. Um, but, you know, like it, it's just made us want to read it all over again. So it's just, I, mm -hmm. I feel like we're buzzing on just the, the um the spirit that she in this book carries which is just like a love for you know deep cut genre um and the inclusion and like how she's shining a light and actually for helping forge careers in this space yeah that's yes. mm. hard to describe what this you know thing is like yes. the house of psychotic women is more than a book it's a movement that actually impacts people's lives and careers yeah yeah so, yeah like and your own film, Sissy, was included in the in the tenth anniversary edition as well. Oh, no. How did you guys feel about that? Uh, okay, so so we're standing on the the rooftop of some hotel in um, Montreal. It's the closing ceremony awards, whatever. We're standing looking at this beautiful sunset. Sam Zimmerman, who's the head, uh, the VP and head program of Shutter, introduces us to Kat, and we're like oh, my God, we love House of Psychotic Women. And she looks at us with a straight face and says, you know you're in it, right? Sissy's in it. And <laughs> Sam was like, I didn't tell you because I wanted to see the expression that's on your faces right now. And we totally dorked out in front of her. But yeah. it was just, like, totally surreal. Yeah, we straight away were like, what? Get out of here. You're <laughs> kidding, man. And we were, like, went red and we looked at Sam and we were like, did you know about this? Because, like, why wouldn't you have told us? And he was like, I just wanted to see the look in your faces. And we were texting him just the other day being like, hey, man, we're, we're like, going to talk talk to Anna about this uh, book. And he was like, man, the highlight of my year was seeing your faces. <laughs> yeah. We were not cool about it. Was, no. We, we, we had just gone to watch this, like, three-hour-long or something, like, talk that she did in this lecture hall. And we mm -hmm. hadn't met her. So she's, like, this rock star to us. Yeah. Um, and then also all the filmmakers that we met at Fantasia that are like, we're in the book too. And we're like, we know. Like, yeah. isn't it cool? <laughs> it, 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 honestly, at that point, and actually still now, is the coolest. I, I, I feel the coolest thing that's happened to us with this film, um, this whole year, hmm. because it means something. Because not only is it like material in like a digital world, like I'm actually holding it, but also just because of the hmm. films that are in here. Like, it's surreal to us. And this is what we geeked out to 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 Kayla about was like we were like a bit shocked going but but we just bought your older copy while we were researching our film <laughs> and she was like and now it's in there and we were like that's surreal that is a total bookend for the experience that was making mm, yeah so yeah yeah it was a moment I love that I would have would have loved to see your faces in that moment <laughs> it, and this is I mean it's such a wonderful bookend like you say so. Tell me about kind of how you mentioned that you picked up the book while you were researching mm. Sissy during the writing and the development process. Kind of how did it impact the the writing? How did it impact the film? And I guess specifically the titular psychotic woman uh, is Sissy. Although, you know, I don't want to spoil the film for anyone who hasn't seen it, who might be listening to this, which they should. Uh, Sissy now available in Shutter Globally, I believe. Uh, <laughs> Sam's just trading you money right now in the background. Like, <laughs> you concocted this whole story and it's working. <laughs> um, 
How did it? Okay. Can I read out our references that we got from the list to start with? Yeah. Sure. Yes. These were all yeah. things that we had been watching while when we found them. In- and there are so many new ones that have been added, um, which I feel like we need to mention as well. But like Antichrist is actually a reference for Sissy. Black Swan, massive reference. Rep- mm-hmm. Repulsion. Whatever happened to Baby Jane? I watched that movie when I was 12 with my mum and I was like, what the fuck was that? Um, and it really excited me and I didn't know what that would lead to someday. Bird with the crystal plumage. Queen of Earth was a massive reference. The loved Ones, Sean Byrne, like Australian iconography. The this, the the colourful nightmare um, that is Sissy comes directly from that movie, Repulsion, Sisters, Three Women and Fatal Attraction. And we were surprised actually when when reading the book and trying to flick through it again that single white female is not in there, which was one of our biggest references. But mm. um, Fatal Attraction kind of released not too far apart uh, was also a, a reference for us. And, and it, 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 I don't know why I relate those two films. They've got completely different casts. Well, um, one's Adrian Lyon, one is... Prob- the, problematic portrayal I, of borderline personality disorder, right? Yeah, and that's, that's where I was going with it was like... But also they, they also they became cultural touchstones because I write about fatal attraction in, in my book, kind of in the chapter about, you know, quote unquote, crazy women yeah. and fatal attraction, single white female both became sort of shorthand, yeah. cultural shorthand, which happens really rarely for movies, you know, that everybody instantly will associate those, the title of the film with a certain type of behavior and yeah. specifically with like a gender, like, you know, you've been single white females or something when instantly, you know, what that means, what that's a reference to. And, and, and yeah. that's, that reminds me, that's why the two films always kind of remind me of each other, even though they're completely different films, is that they were probably our two main references in going back to how, um, you know, quote unquote, psychotic women were represented um, at least in that era, 80s, 90s, you know, um, and they there was always the shot of the pills behind the medical cabinet that weren't taken. There was the diagnosis that she has borderline personality disorder or she's bipolar. And it was always this idea that um, crazy women in films, A, are the villains and also B, um, have a mental disorder. And and one of the mm-hmm. thing, one of the first things that we took from going through the book was like, we have to go beyond that. We can't just say that Sissy is the way she is because she's off her meds. Like we've, as a society, we've moved beyond that kind of stereotyping of mental condition, Um, you know, and so it forced us to um, try, I think, to represent whatever Cecilia's condition is. It's not actually really, hopefully when you watch the movie, it's not, you don't think, oh, what's what's the diagnosis? It's actually more about the pain she's felt because of what she's gone through in relation to her friendship and, and things like that. It's and the this- strange way, the weird and wacky way that her repressed rage, her needing to honour her inner child who wasn't able to respond to the bullying, like the way that that permeated in her life as an adult. It's about bigger things than like a condition which is, Mm. you know not portrayed accurately necessarily in a film that needs to make lots of money in a box office um Mm. yeah Yeah. so they i think they became they became like mirror films for in many ways what to do in terms of the filmmaking they're brilliant movies but also what not to do yeah Mm -hmm. 
And and I would love for you to know, like keep throwing in how um you know how you developed and and worked on Sissy because it's always uh, a privilege to hear kind of the behind the behind the scenes stuff from filmmakers. But I wanted to move on to the film we're actually here to talk about. So when I invited you on the podcast, and as I've been doing with all the guests for this mini series, I offered you to pick any film that's covered in the book out of the. 200 in the first edition 300 in the in the second one and you came back really straight away with a couple of suggestions but i wanted to ask you why did you pick carrie i mean how can you not pick carrie it, it like, <laughs> we were like we were like wait no one else is doing this you were like no and we were like okay look this either makes us look like we don't go past like a famous film like it's not a deep cut but at the same time if it brings more audiences to this movie, all the better because to us, and I think I think she actually backs it up in her book, Kayla, like it is the um, pinnacle or not the pinnacle because it's, it's, it's already- It's the first of its kind. It's kind of like, it's where it, when you want to make a film about um, someone who's being bullied and essentially stops, mm. like you go straight to Carrie. It's just kind of the holy grail of that. Um, and so much of the DNA of Sissy is is Carrie. And yeah. we watched it again this mm-hmm. afternoon just to refresh and it was like, wow, mm-hmm. there are things that we don't we don't even realize that we stole. Right. Know? Like her having her period <laughs> like, like her period in the shower, obviously at the beginning, obviously is famous. But mm-hmm. like I mean, you know, in a in a very small way in our film, it's like Cecilia gets a period, goes to buy some tampons. Like it is it, it, there's so many things from that film that I think we were nodding at um sometimes the glitter gore the glitter gore of the prom like just just the fact that she's standing in front of that sparkly background covered in blood like this there's, there's so there's sparkles in the blood you there's, know there's so much that i think we willingly were referencing and then so much that we didn't even realize we had put in there um and upon rewatching it now after finishing the movie and just living with it for three or four years it's like oh wow like there's stuff that was just deeply embedded in us, I think. Um, like it's very basic bitch of us to choose Kerry, but it's also <laughs> perfect. Like yeah. it's a perfect film. Yeah, and yeah. and also mm-hmm. like and also like we were just as inspired by things like Mean Girls, but Mean you don't get Mean Girls without Kerry. No, like that. It's e- very true. Even the way you have like the Queen Bee, right? Like the Nancy Allen character, and then you also have like Sue, who's like the nice, cool girl. Like that very much is Hannah's character. That's uh, Emma in Sissy. You know, like, like, mm-hmm. like it's her idea to bring to send her boyfriend to invite Carrie to take her to the prom because it would be a nice thing. And all along, you're kind of wondering, like, are are they for real? Like, are they just doing this as part of a kind of um, like, are they going to be revealed? Um, it's just as bad as their friends and that this is all part of the act. And then you're like, no, like they genuinely were trying to do a nice thing, but it was their, um, their naivety that this would work. And their flippantness. And, and, yeah. and, you know, like when the teacher is, is saying to them to Sue and her boyfriend, Tommy, I think it is, right? Yeah. When, when she talks mm-hmm. to them being like, but how's it going to look? Think about it. You're going to arrive at the prom with Carrie White and and she's like, um, Sue's like, well, we don't care what it what 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 it looks like, but that's kind of like what you get in horror movies where there's like this warning, right? It's like there's the old man whose eyes are white and he can't see anymore. He's like, don't go up that hill there because that house is haunted, you know. Like that's the warning that they get and they don't listen, and they go ahead and they go to her house and they uh, um and 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 Tommy, you know, who's thirty years old, but that's okay. He invites Carrie. <laughs> 
to the prom. <laughs> he insists that she comes with him, that she won't take no for an answer. And you can argue that it all goes down because of that. The moral um, ambiguity, the guilt and the shame. And, yeah. Yeah. And I think all of those things are just what we basically built our screenplay off from day one. So it's kind of kind of hard to, it would be disingenuous to not do carry out of any movie, let alone movies that are in this particular book. Mm. So I think we were flirting with sisters because we thought like, let's do a, let's, let's, let's be cool filmmakers. Let's be, let's be cool and do a lesser known Brian De Palma joint. But I think this is just the obvious one. Yeah. I mean, I love both Carrie and Sister. So I have De Palma is probably one of my favorite problematic faves. Yeah. As in, like, I know that he's probably not the nicest person, and I know a lot of his choices are incredibly sleazy. But God damn it, I, I love his films. The zooms and <laughs> the, the split screens. We were so unhappy the day we figured out we couldn't get a split screen in Sissy. <laughs> it, it, it didn't happen, but it, we were talking about it all through the edit. So, you know, just his formalism, his aesthetic was, was mm. I think, was really genius. Uh, a spirit with us the whole time. But I, yeah. know, I know what you're saying about, yeah, about everything else. <laughs> but uh, so I wanted to ask you guys personally, what is your relationship with Carrie? Kind of when did you first encounter this film? And, you know, you speak so much about how it influenced Sissy in particular, but what is your personal relationship with the film and how has it changed over the years and rewatches? Mm. I mean, I watched Carrie as a kid, but I had repressed that um, and returned to it, you know, five years ago. Um, how about you? Yeah. Um, well, I think I first saw it um, when I was at film school. So I was kind of, you know, I got bitten by the film bug, went to film school, and I just started to gorge on things. Right as this book was coming um, out. Which would have been around that time. Yeah, yeah, well, like a little bit earlier. That's very sweet of you that you think I was at film school only, only 10 years ago, but close, close. I was graduating. <laughs> Sorry. Four, mate, Sorry, old man. 12, 12, 14 years. Who's counting? Um, <laughs> but, you know, uh, yeah, I just fell in love with it right off the bat. I fell in love with De Palma. I, I kind of discovered De Palma through Scorsese, who was kind of like one of my first mm-hmm. loves. And then I got into that whole kind of, you know, that whole kind of rap, rap pack. The new Hollywood gang. The new Hollywood gang. Oh, my God. I read every book on the new Hollywood gang. I just wanted to be in that gang. So you still want to be yeah. in that gang. And, you know, and there's such a lot. And you look back on it now and you're like, they're all dudes. <laughs> like They all came from, you know, upper middle class economic backgrounds. With but, mummy issues. But yeah. Brian, Brian De Palma. Every single one of them. <laughs> you're so right. That's how the feminism shone through. <laughs> uh but yeah i came i mean you know it's just one of those things that you 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 come across uh i never read the book i've still never Mm. read the book um but it's just one of my favorite movies honestly and i should read the book i've never done the stephen king you absolutely should should, absolutely we need to become stephen king readers yeah as opposed to just yeah the frustration just cinema hounds (laughs) Um, but it's it's amazing. I read this fact the other day that uh, Carrie was the very first book that Stephen King ever sold. It was the first. It's true. Yeah, and it's number one out of a hundred things that have been adapted. 
Like it's the first mm-hmm. thing that got adapted and he was 26 years old. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. And in fact, he was, uh, I remember reading in his, his nonfiction books, I really recommend. He's got, you know, the book on craft, which is about writing. And then he's got this book of essays called Dance Macabre, which is one of my favorite pieces of nonfiction ever, which is all about kind of horror and horror culture in literature and movies. And he writes, you know, when it's, it's known that he was working as a janitor in a high school, I think. Um, when he was, you know, writing uh, in his spare time and when he sold Carrie, Carrie changed everything for him and for his wife, Tabitha. Like they went from, you know, that kind of, you know, working those types of jobs and writing in their spare time to, oh, there's no going back after this. And once the adaptation started, he is still to this day, I believe, the most adapted author in the world. Um, Like you know, every month there's a new Stephen King adaptation, either a series or remake or new film. And the impact that Carrie, both novel and film, really had on the look, I think, and the vibe of Stephen King adaptations, the whole, you know, uh, his well-trodden quote, you know, that actually the monsters in his books are the humans and rarely the actual, you know, creatures that populate them. Mm really starts with Carrie. Because I think one of the things uh, I, I mean, I've, I've spoken with um, uh, about Carrie on the podcast before, but it's one of the books and the films that I keep coming back to because it was so momentous. Like it felt momentous watching and it feels like I take something new from it every single time I rewatch it. And, and this kind of idea of Carrie has become this emblem of uh, a psychotic woman, a woman, a, a teenage girl who just snaps and breaks and you know commits this massacre but i never really thought of her and i continue to not think of her as the villain in her own story and i was wondering kind of what you think about that about the dynamics and the the girl with the powers versus the mean girls and who the actual monster in the film is I think you've touched upon something that, again, I didn't realise we inherited massively, which is is the protagonist as villain we, we know, but that those are the most effective stories for us, I think, as filmmakers, as creatives, because really the monsters do live inside the humans and really the biggest monsters in our generation especially live within our own head like our, our outlook on the world, which is so hard for it's so hard to be positive today with so much exposure to such bleak um news across the world and the what we're heading towards and um i think kerry was kind of the first of its kind to really tap into the psychosis of being othered um and that was definitely like a springboard for us like if Carrie was othered and ostracized by the social group. Um, how does Cecilia other herself as a way of protecting herself? Mm. Um, because um, Carrie wants to belong, and that's her demise. Um, and she's 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 totally a victim. Like she's bullied uh, in every aspect of her life. You know, it's not just the mean girls at school. It's like the kid who skates past her in the street at the beginning. Her you know? mother wants to murder yeah. her. Yeah. Yeah, mom. Like, yeah, her mom is like the ultimate, the ultimate bully. Um, speaking of, I mean, uh, I'll 
um, I've skipped the page now, but there's this amazing quote in Kayla's book, which just basically talks about like how maybe um, Carrie's mom is kind of like one of the greatest villains in horror history because, you know, like mm -hmm. there's nothing scarier than a horrible mother. Because like, if you think yes. about just like the bastardization, like the, um, what would you call it? Like the, the, the perversion of the sanctity of motherhood. She's re like, yes, yeah, she's religious, but she's really just mentally ill. And so mm. Carrie is just this sweet, innocent fawn who basically. Um, she's practicing agency. She, well, she's, she's, but she's deeply traumatized because she's basically inherited this intergenerational trauma from her mother. Um, and we don't ever really, you know, get to know too much about why her mother's that way. Uh, obviously, the father's not around and all that because he runs off with this other woman because, because you know, for whatever reason, she became that religious. But, you know, it's like, um, I don't know. I just think the way Kayla talks about Carrie in her book about how, you know, she also um, at school would get locked in lockers and, and, and teased and how part of, you know, her being at school was just kind of learning to survive and... Um, the, the sort of social paranoia of growing up. Yeah. You know, which we can all relate to. And, and, and how messed up that is for kids to go through that when their brain's still growing. I just think, mm -hmm. like, you know, that's a real horror. Like, that's like, a, that's like a real direct consequence of mental illness, which I think is... is um, but again, not to stereotype mental illness, maybe she's just a religious zealot and that's that, but you've got to think that comes from some form of mental illness. Um, at least that's how it's talked about in Kayla's book. And um, I, I just think that's like the most insidious kind because it's happening in every other house right now, you know, and there's no- And it's amplified on social media and yeah. kids are growing up with social media now. And so yeah. like, what would Carrie look like today online? You know, that's that's terrifying to yeah. me. Yeah, and I think that's I think mm. a lot of that was just where we came to the character of Sissy. It was just kind of like you know, um, we don't get into the background or to the family or anything like that. Um, yeah, on purpose. But there there were ideas thrown around about in we were like, mm. what if we what what if we explored you know her mother character or what something if like that. Her mother was her psychologist. Yeah. and there were no boundaries and all. And stuff, she was a problematic character, and I think a lot of that was coming from Carrie. But Carrie we, already did it. <laughs> we, we all, yeah, we're, we're like, we're, we're like, we're, we're not going to do it better than Carrie. So yeah, let's just do something. I am, you know? I am fascinated by the taboo aspect of it as well. I mean, when I've when I've since rewatched Carrie as an adult, like certain things come into um into first uh, to the forefront when you're watching it as an adult versus as a teenager i grew up reading stephen king so like i remember reading carrie and only then watching the movie so the carrie that i carried with me was the one from the book Ooh. which was very different from the one in the movie um but there is such a layer of shame throughout the whole film, which I found so interesting, particularly even the shame and the taboo of even considering or seeing a bad mother, a terrifying mother on screen. And oh my God, Piper Laurie is fucking terrifying in the film because there is no off switch and because she, whether she is mentally unstable or just a religious zealot, as you say, in either direction, she has no off switch and Carrie is just one more 
thing that she gets to kind of enact her beliefs on or her instability on. And the sense of shame that she feels about herself, that's very obvious, you know, when she calls, like the way she speaks about her own body or the, you know, the husband or the man who uh, ran off or the way she talks about Carrie's body as well in the film, the whole dirty pillow speech and all this stuff. It's like, wow, every single thing that comes out of her mouth is just soaking in shame. And she so desperately wants to transplant that onto Carrie. And and there's like those traces of that, I think, in, in Sissy as well, of the sense of, well, I can't, you know, if I'm receiving this treatment, like the amount of work that she's clearly done that we don't see in the film to sort of put behind those feelings, but they're never fully gone. Yeah, it's a superficial layer. And it, she's just, her psychosis is bubbling at the surface because mm. she hasn't actually done the work on herself. She's just projecting out a reality that she desperately wants for herself. But, like, there was a moment when we watched Carrie today where, you know, the mother is, like, smiling as she's murdering her daughter because she's finally killing her sin, right? Mm, and, yes, exactly. And it's like, oh, it's just, it gives you shivers. And you watch Carrie um, shoot the daggers into her mother and, and then her mother takes the final poses, like the martyr, like the Jesus figure in the closet, and um, Carrie's kind of, like, fascinated by what she's done, but then she looks away like she can't be accountable for the murder mm. that's taking place. And, and I realised, again, like, that's what we did with Cecilia. Like, there's there's not glee in the killings, but there's this mm. sort of, like, I'm not actually here right now. I'm not doing this. I'm not responsible for this my behavior or my actions mm. and there's yeah there's crossover yeah which you know is disassociation or whatever you call it in in moments of trauma but also i think um you know i think we were we were poking a little more fun in a kind of satirical way you know just um the lack of accountability um Mm. with self-victimizers whereas i think in carrie's case it's like she's, she's a victim she's looking away because no you know 16 year old kid or whatever should see her mother with like six butcher knives in her um and carrie's <laughs> it's totally understand yeah she's so sweet she's so, so sweet she's so sweet like just the extents that you know the script and i don't know if it's like this in the book but um but tell me if it is but the extents to which the script and especially De Palma go to, 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 you know, um, to paint her, like her last name's white, right? She's pure, she, mm -hmm. you know, she's, she's um, not just virginal, but she's so like, she's never had a period for the first time. And, and she freaks out. Like she's that innocent to the world that she, no one has even told her what that is, you know, and she, she comes home and she's on the floor and she's holding him up. You know, she's like, why didn't you tell me mama? Um, Mama. There's, there's, she's so innocent. <laughs> it's like ridiculous how innocent she is. And then she massacres people 90 minutes later. And it's like, that is a huge arc to pull off in one movie. But she's innocent mm. at the very end, even because she buries herself with her sin. Right. right. Yeah. So, you know, like, yeah. I think in general, that character arc was something that we were like, okay you know, how do we pull off a character arc where someone goes from kind of so sweet at the beginning to, you know, um, I don't know if, you know, no spoilers, but to what happens at the end of, of our film now, it's, it's nothing compared to Carrie. Like it's really, I think we tried to take a little more of like a, this could happen approach. Um, mm. 
you know, but we did it at one point. We thought like, what if she was telekinetic? And then we were like, well, then we're just making doing Carrie. We're again. just doing Carrie again. <laughs> so like, it was one of those things where we, we had to find a new way in because that story had been so well done. Yeah. Um, and how much do you think that that like ability and that innocence is down to Sissy's basics performance? Hundred percent. A lot of best it. casting of all time. We were yeah. talking about that earlier today. It's one of those rare, perfect castings where it's like they just look right, mm. sound right, everything. She looks slightly creepy, but like also incredibly beautiful and naive, and you just endow her with so much innocence and purity, and like the inner child within Sissy Spacek is so strong. Like mm. you mm. can't help but agree with her that she should murder that even the teacher who's on her side. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I'm like, really? Why? Because you know, it's gotta go there. And that's something that I noticed on the rewatch was like, um, you you've always got to kind of kill off the character who is seemingly innocent, but also in a way whose inaction led to the same to this happening. Just yeah, as, she's responsible just, too. Just as much as the perpetrators. Because she's slapping the teenagers around. Like the, there's, mm. there's a whole subplot of, oh, of Carrie where the, t- the teacher's having a slow burn mental breakdown. <laughs> and like, oh yeah. No one- oh, it's very 70s. It's like, oh, you're you're skimping class. I'm just gonna slap the shit out yeah. of you. And she's like, you're not gonna get yeah. away with this. And the teacher's like, yeah, I probably shouldn't get away with it. Like <laughs> I, I feel like in the age of Netflix, we can surely have a limited series about Carrie's like phys ed teacher. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the predecessor is, um, yeah, Tina Fey in, in Mean Girls, straight copy, totally. straight copy. Yes, yeah. it's very true. Yeah. And also, like, I, I, we haven't even talked about this, but, like, the most obvious thing is that when we were thinking of what to call Sissy, it, we literally were like, it came from Sissy Spacek. Yeah. 100%. Oh, my God, really? Yeah, yeah. It was like we were literally, because now you look at it and you're like, oh, it's Sissy the Sissy and her name's Cecilia and it's seemingly all about what the theme is. But it's like the reality is, is when we were writing, we were like, what's this character's name? Um, and and we were talking about Carrie and we are like, what, Creepy a, Carrie, what yeah. about let's, it's yeah. too obvious to Carrie, let's do Sissy, you know, it's got a, it's got a S mm-hmm. sound, but it sounds menacing. And then we work backwards and we're like, well, what's Sissy short for, Cecilia? So yeah. that's that's where that came from. So yeah. it's directly tied to this movie. I love this. And I do I do agree with you that it does make sense that she sort of buries herself. It makes perfect character sense. It makes perfect plot sense. But it and it's also, you know, a part of that everything now kind of leaves everything open up to uh sequels or franchising or series and whatnot and i have to say like i love the fact that despite the fact that there is a sequel that has nothing to do with carrie white um and that there is a there's a very little scene 2002 attempted a series of carrie with angela bettis where she does survive and essentially that that it's now been I think recut as a film, but it the intent was that that was the episode the episode that would then set Carrie free and she would you know go be a telekinetic menace um <laughs> onwards uh, instead of just burying herself with the massacre. But there is there's something really timeless about the performance. Like as much as the Palmer's direction feels very of the seventies, um. The performance of Sissy's Basic is just like every time I watch it, it could be, it could have, you know, just landed on Netflix today. Okay. It could have just, um, you know, been in an HBO series today. There's something so tender. You 
so damn near about her performance that you want to protect her always. Yeah. And I remember that's also how I felt reading the book. It's like, oh no, oh no, oh sweetie, no. <laughs> like, please, just one person, just one person to help you out in a way that actually helps you instead of helping themselves, which is what Sue does. Like, she's not really trying to help Carrie. She's just trying to help herself. Yeah. It's kind of so remarkable how um, sweet and good-natured she is through like three quarters, like most of the movie, considering the amount of shit that she cops in her life. Um, like she mm. should be like a psychopath way. Like she, I wouldn't even think of her as a psychopath. She just snapped and in a moment's rage, you know. She being, was right in her actions. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I would argue that, you know, the teacher doesn't deserve to die, but, but you know, in that, in those moments, it's like, and, and and she would have killed Sue as well if Sue hadn't like been locked out of the gym in the first place. Yeah. So yeah, I yeah. liked the morality play of all of that. That was really fun. And I think that like Sissy Spacek, she's such a genius, but also in Three Women, she plays like the opposite end of the same character. You want you want to kill yes. that character. She is so freaking annoying and and needy. But she's so naive that you you have empathy for her because she's just like a Bambi in the world. Yeah, totally. But like mm. I yeah, I I you defend Carrie to the end. Like you yes. like I'm with you. You're my martyr. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and what do you make of the I mean I don't even know how to call it or you know even how to quantify its influence, but Carrie's massacre of the high school, the prom massacre that starts when the when the pig's blood lands in her head. What do you guys make of that? The scene, the true rage, the true scene of rage and violence that we get in this film. I mean, it's just amazing. I I've never. It's like a music video. Yeah, like it just goes to full red, split screen, slow you know. motion, like the 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 dangle of the pig's blood above the glitter. Yeah, yeah, it's just. It's a clashing Chef's of worlds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, like that. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, is is there are, are there other movies that um, like that that are such a good mix of kind of glitter and blood, like pre Carrie or just after? Like, I feel like that that was one of our only references to like a film that really went there. The genesis of glitter gore. The genesis of glitter gore. <laughs> <laughs> It's not really a lot of gore of gore in Carrie. It's really just blood. Yeah, you know, it's just, and it's pig's blood. It's not even yeah. human blood. Yeah, yeah. It, but it's the idea. Yeah. It's the fact that they're all in there burning, um, and they're locked in there. You know, it's all their hopes and dreams. It's 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 what you don't <laughs> see. It's what's left to the imagination. Um, that's even worse, I think. And the movie that I think of is actually The Loved One. Yes. Well, that's true. Which also has also has a lot of glitter and a hell of a lot more gore than Carrie does. That's true. That's true. That's got a shit ton of gore. I mean, there's literally like a cave of people under the ground. It's, <laughs> anyway. it's like a gleeful, cracked disco ball, that movie. I love it. <laughs> but I actually, I did want to ask you because you've mentioned it a couple of times, Hannah, but what do you mean when you talk about glitter gore? I think it, did, someone gave us that that term. I don't know where it came from. It was some. Did you give us that term? Someone gave us that term. I definitely asked you about it on the at the Q and A we did at Edinburgh. Well, then maybe you may have coined it. You, you may have. Did I coin it? 
I need to stop coining things. <laughs> I coined so many things. It, I don't lose track. It, let's just say that you coined it right there um, okay. at the Q and A in Edinburgh because we were we were talking a lot about kind of psycho Disney pop. How that was something that was a, a phrase <laughs> that got us through the edit of Sissy. You know, it's psycho Disney pop. That's something that our editor Margie really came up with, um, and we just kind of wrote it on the wall. Um, but I think Glitter Gore has almost like replaced that recently because it's just so it's it's such a cool clashing of words. The alliteration <laughs> is peak. Um, yeah. Thanks, Anna. Thanks, Anna. I do love alliteration, so it sounds like something I would come up with. But um, I mean, what does it mean? I don't know. I, it means exactly what it sounds. It's those two things stuck together. You know, blood infused with problematic glitter and we need more of it i think we need more of it yeah i think you know when i'm thinking back to when we we spoke uh at edinburgh you know and one of the things i really loved about sissy and there's a couple of other things that i films that i think of in that in that space it's the combination of the high femme aesthetic all the girly stuff all the stuff that we're told is just superficial and flighty, like glitter. And then all the horrific shit that goes on in these films, the violence, the gore, you know, the emotional violence as well that happens. And emotional violence, I think, is a distinctively female space. Like, the way that women and girls are cruel to each other in such an offhanded way, but piercing to the very core of your soul i genuinely think that's you know i'm i don't know if i'm stealing this quote from someone or if i'm just thinking out loud but you know when you know men have wars we just have like emotional cruelty (laughs) like from a very very young age like no one is as mean as small girls are no and like the core of all y2k feminist comedies like extending into the mid uh 20 teens it's all about female cruelty, social mm. ostracization, which is a killer, like genuinely, psychologically, when we're when we're excluded from the herd, we die. But like that's just our biological history. So I feel like, yeah, stories about women explore that more than in any other genre. And I just think mm. that it that's why it's so ripe in horror, because you can squish some heads and pop out some eyeballs to make it all the more fun. You know, but like, let's make fun of it. <laughs> but but I do think a lot of that comes straight from that prom um, scene in in Carrie. Yeah, which, which is what you were getting. I at. think like, so it, too. It, it's inspired so much. The breaking of the tiara, which has become an- another cultural touchstone in pop culture. Yes, in from Mean Girls, that's right out of Carrie. Like, mm. It's, mm. yeah, it's sometimes it's like almost shot for shot, like that room. And just the look, just just the pink and blue lighting and the all all of that stuff. The the kind of um, I mean, it's seventy six, Carrie, but it's got that. It's got what we associate with that kind of eighties prom aesthetic. Um, yeah. So you know, I- and and it's an aesthetic that's coming back. Like even you know, look at Olivia Rodrigo and kind of this very yeah. again, like a completely new generation looking back at Y two K and kind of these images you know and she got into some shit because um courtney love thought that she was stealing from her and courtney love at the same time is taken from carrie and from that oh my god from jawbreaker that movie with rose mcgallan which is cruel 
So this is one of the nastiest films I've ever seen. Oh my god! When you see that brawl breaker in her throat, like the, the brawl, the ball in her throat, like a snake digesting. You can't get that it. feeling out of your body. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's a glitter gore movie right there. Like I know it's it's pitched as a teen girl movie, but th- that is horrific. horrific. That's true. I mean that that really is a glitter gore film. Um, but I was traumatized by like Crossroads, Mean Girls, even like Bridesmaids. There's social horror in those movies. It's, yeah, because they're social ostracization. Because scenarios. My fears as a woman, it's all purely psychological. It's people not liking mm-hmm. me, my space. Like I'm I'm not worthy of taking up space. I don't belong here. I don't be- deserve to have a voice. Like that's all amplified in those comedies in like a digestible way. And, you know, I think it all stems from Carrie. And it's so funny that it it, it was told by a man in, in words and then re-delivered by a man visually because it's so feminist. Like it, it just works. I don't mm. know. Well, it's in and Sorry. Before before I let you guys go, I did want to ask you, you know, out of everything that we've spoken about, Carrie and its deep influence on Sissy and House of Psychotic Women, is there anything that anything that we haven't touched on that you wanted to bring up? Um, I don't know, not really. I mean, we mentioned the loved ones, which I'm glad we did because that's that's really you know kind of shout out to Australian horror um lives well in that lineage um yeah you guys are messed up the most fucked up horror films i've seen in the last 10 years have been australia it's because we're isolated and (laughs) and also we have a really dark dark convict history like there's a lot of there are a lot of really nasty butcher psychopaths in our history yeah so i feel like the ghosts are kind of like permeating their way through the generations <laughs> and and all, although i think we have a very like you know kind of tongue-in-cheek uh, dr- uh, dry kind of like sardonic approach to a lot of things our horror tends to be quite grisly i feel but at the same time there's been a lot of satire in the past i mean whether it's you know like you know, Razorback or like Long Weekend or like like a lot of these films have a satirical edge to them. Um, but I feel like Loved Ones just turned it up a dial and wasn't afraid to be essentially a comedy horror um, or a, a horror tinged with comedy, I think, um, in a way that kind of hadn't necessarily been done maybe as extravagantly or as flamboyantly in the past. Um, I would like to offer Muriel's wedding to anyone who's listening because that's a huge part of our cinematic canon. Yeah. And again, Y two K coming of age, um, psychological uh, comedy. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's a dramedy. It's not a horror, but, but it's pitched as a broad comedy, and there are definitely horror elements. The mum shoves herself into an oven and kills yeah. herself. Well, spo- like, spoilers. That's. If that's not scary, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. No, but it's very Muriel's wedding. It, we always said it's like Carrie meets, meets Muriel's wedding. Like that's really, <laughs> if, you know, if Muriel suddenly started getting telekinetic powers and killing all of her friends, then you would have like the Australian version of Carrie. Yeah. So that's kind of. <laughs> <laughs> and she was planning her wedding at the same yeah, time. Yeah. She just wanted to get married. <laughs> Never mind these telekinetic powers. That's what I want to see. If someone does a d- another, like, a reboot of Carrie, it's when she's getting married. Yeah, yeah. Actually, mm. we should pitch that. Like, she climbs out. Of- you should. <laughs> she climbs out of the cave. I'm- 
you know. In a way. <laughs> Maybe someone listening to this will be like, here's a whole bunch of money. Yeah. You should make Carrie gets yeah. married. Hey, hey, uh, shut up, shut up. Uh, <laughs> Carrie climbed out of that grave and, and crawled along for Motel 6 and, you know, got her shit together. Clean yourself up and. Uh... Yeah, yeah. And eventually. Went to therapy. Yeah. <laughs> Re enrolled, got into college somehow. Um, and, and started becoming obsessed with Vogue Bridal. Yeah, telekinetic power was alive. All the way along, um, but yeah, Muriel's right, wedding. Not. We we. It's funny. Every, like I feel like Muriel's wedding is kind of became like the north star of the film, which in a way has nothing to do with the genre. But it's just like Carrie maybe is the American kind of touch point for kind mm-hmm. of bullying narratives. Muriel's wedding was the Australian. It yeah. was for us when we were growing up. It was on Friday night TV every weekend, and you would mm. just like the way that she's bullied by her friend group is what just kind of became our, I guess, like cinematic touchstone for bullying. So, you know, that's probably, that's a good pull. Muriel is a final girl as well. She, yeah. she survived her own neuroses. Yeah. There you, there you go. go. She should be in this book. Come on, Kayla. I'm into this. Re- I'm into this rereading of Muriel's wedding. <laughs> Never thought about it this way. <laughs> go back and rewatch it now. Yeah. And, um, before Rival Pop, I just wanted to ask you guys, you know, we I'm not gonna ask you about the remakes. I've I've seen them kind of angrily, all of them. Except Carrie to the Rage, which I stand by stands alone because I actually think it's a film that doesn't need to be a Carrie sequel. The Carrie stuff you can just sort of ignore when it happens, but as a film it's quite interesting. But not a fan of the Kimberly Pierce one and the 2002 sort of weird series remake should have worked, but really doesn't. Mm. So, but there is something about the 76 one and only Carrie that still resonates today. And I was wondering kind of as closing thoughts, what do you think about Carrie still rings so true? I think we all are Carrie. I think that today, whether you're a child, an adult, you're in your pubescent years, or you're just trying to navigate um, a world that exists primarily online. You know, we're all gazing at each other, asking for acceptance um, through like this highly filtered void. And that's that's Kerry, her social setting, her trying to find agency in an incredibly traumatic environment when all odds are stacked against her. Like we're all in that mindset on a daily basis because we're plugged into our phones asking for likes and follows. So, yeah, it's kind of terrifying to think what Carrie, how Carrie would have done if she was a 16 year old today, uh, especially with that mother. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, what it, what it just reminds me is just that we all tap on the, you know, the neuroses of our parents and the sooner we admit that, <laughs> accept that, the sooner we can move on with healing and getting into therapy and not blowing up therapy for Carrie therapy for everyone yes. that's yes. it that's it let, you let, it. let's do in treatment with Gabriel Byrne and Carrie White <laughs> <laughs> yes you know Carrie is what happens to Matilda if she doesn't get adopted by Miss Honey 100% if Miss Honey started slapping people around yeah <laughs> That's the pitch. <laughs> you can have it. <laughs> Such a gracious host. 
Um, Hannah, Kane, thank you so much for your time and for your insight on House of Psychotic Women, on Carrie, and also on your own film, which, by the way, for anyone listening, where can they find and watch Sissy online and where can they follow you? They can find Sissy exclusively on Shudder. You're you're not getting paid extra for this. I'm not. I just love <laughs> I just love Shudder. I love the team at Shudder. They are so cool. I want to be them. So yes, yeah, Shudder. And then um you can find Sissy at sissy.movie and also us. We're at HBAR and at Kane Senis. And also, if you happen to be listening to this and are in Australia, Sissy is playing in your local cinema now. Tomorrow. So, Well, by the time of release yeah. of this podcast, yeah. go and see it uh, before it ends up uh, on Shutter here as well. Yeah. So. Amazing. Beautiful plugs. Well done <laughs> Thank on you. the plugs. Thank you. They're, uh, they're <laughs> at this point. <laughs> Thank you.